well. Wish I could get that energy and just bottle it up. You want to get out your sermon outline that says a better country on it. Before I get started, today is something of a milestone sermon for me, and uh, thus for you. Uh, today marks the 700th sermon that I have preached here at Potomac Hills. It is not likely that you will go anywhere ever again where there'll be 700 sermons from one person. Um, possible, particularly for those of you who are younger. Um, those of you who are my age, you have no shot. Um, the, uh, but I hope, I, I don't, I've often said, I don't expect one sermon to change your life. I'm as surprised as you are when that actually happens, and it does occasionally. Uh, but I do expect that there will be a cumulative effect of hearing hundreds and hundreds of sermons, that over the years, um, that God's Word would do its work in your life uh, somehow, um, uh, probably more in spite of me than because of me, uh, but I'm the one that has the privilege of uh, bringing it to you the most. And uh, so uh, I appreciate your willingness to listen for all these years. Uh, it is a uh, fair number of messages, and I'm sure you remember each and every one in great detail. So with that said, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, our text for today. I know, we were here last week, too, so it's kind of like cheating. But uh, last week, Dave uh, looked at sort of the whole uh, chapter, skipped a few verses uh, in the middle and at the end, but looking at all the various Bible characters and how God used them to demonstrate faith. And today we're going to uh, more do the bird's eye view, sort of the big picture. So let me read, we have three sections from Hebrews 11, and I ask you, please listen carefully as this is God's word. Verses 1 through 3, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Then jumping down to verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then jumping down to the last two verses, verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. And our prayer this morning is the same prayer of that wise disciple who said, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. So Lord, we come before you this morning believing, help our unbelief, even as we study this word about faith. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would press it home and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Faith is sometimes a difficult concept to grasp. And we come this morning to Hebrews 11, verse 1, which is often referred to as the definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, or as the New King James Version puts it, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But still many people have little understanding of faith. So they try to figure it out on their own. Often they uh, wind up like the piano mice uh, who lived all their lives in a large piano. And the music of the instrument came to them in their piano world, filling all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. And at first the mice were impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who was making this music. Though invisible to them, someone above yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player whom they couldn't see. Then one day a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He had found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of graduated length that trembled and vibrated. And they had to revise all their old beliefs. None but the most conservative could still believe in the unseen player. And later, another exploring mouse ventured further into the piano and carried the explanation farther. Hammers were now the secret. Great numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, though the pianist continued to play. And in this story, the, the story of the faith of the mice is placed in the how and in the why of the music coming from the piano, not in the one who played the music on the piano. In much the same way today, people think if we can figure out how things happen, then they'll place their faith in man. Or maybe they think if they understand why it happens, they'll place their faith in ideas or philosophy. And even for some Christians, they place their faith in faith. But none of these are biblical. For the Bible's concerned that we place our faith in the one who makes things happen, the one who creates and sustains all things. And Hebrews 11 takes us on this long tour of biblical history to teach us that very thing. Our faith is to be placed in the character and attributes of God himself. And so today, we're back to Hebrews 11, 
And I know Reverend Doris covered a lot of this with you last week, looking at the Hall of Faith and all the people mentioned in this chapter. But today, however, we're going to step back, look at some of these summary verses, and try to see the big picture of the chapter. So turn with me again to Hebrews 11, starting at verse 1, where we begin with faith in God's power. Faith in God's power, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, and where at the very end of that chapter there's this chilling warning. The main point of the warning uh, is if you turn your back on Jesus, because the whole theme of the book is that Jesus is better, he's the only Savior, Jesus is superior to anything offered anywhere else, and if you turn your back on the only Savior, Jesus, then there are dire eternal consequences. And so you may be asking yourself, how do we get from that kind of warning in Hebrews 10 to this chapter on faith where all the heroes of Scripture are celebrated. What's the connection between Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 11? Well, in fact, there is a connection because we're going to look at the very last verse of Hebrews 10, verse 39, because he ends the warning with a word of encouragement. Remember the last few verses, he, he turns positive at the end. And then he says to his congregation in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, he's indicating to this congregation of Hebrew Christians that he has good hope for their spiritual condition in Christ. He says, you're not of those who turn your backs on Jesus and look away from them and thus be judged. You have faith. And so in that statement from Hebrews 10, verse 39, leads then to this exploration of faith in chapter 11, which he says, you know, and that's the way it's always been with the people of God. We've always walked by faith from the very beginning. And so he begins to explore the subject of faith. And yet, if you think about it, there's a sense in which all people everywhere live by faith. Society is built on a foundation of faith. We go out to the hallway and you drink water out of the water faucet out there with confidence that it's safe. You go to a restaurant and you order a meal and you're confident that it's not contaminated. We willingly receive payment uh, in our business and in our personal lives in the form of a check or paper money, neither of which has any intrinsic value at all. We accept them because of our faith in the person or the company or the government that issues them. We put our faith in a surgeon and in medical science in general, though we may not have the least training, competence, or experience in medicine ourselves. We submit to the surgeon's knife entirely by faith. The capacity for faith is created in us. And spiritual faith operates in the same realm 
uh, the same type of capacity. It willingly accepts and acts on so many things it doesn't fully understand. For every one of us, there's things in the Scripture that we don't get 100%. But spiritual faith is radically different from natural faith in one very important way. It's not natural. It's not like our trust in water or money or the doctor. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 teaches us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So just as natural faith comes by natural birth, so spiritual faith comes by spiritual birth. Now, this whole issue of faith is deeply important to these Hebrew Christians and to this little struggling church because persecution and suffering are about to fall on them in great measure. Things seem so uncertain. The government seems to be changing regularly, and their rules seem to be changing regularly. And those things that seemed secure in the past no longer seem secure for the future. And I'm actually talking about Rome, not us today, although the similarities are there. But the writer to the Hebrews knows that if they're going to make it, they have to have strong faith and real hope. But you can't have faith in something that doesn't work. You can't have faith in something that isn't true. And you can't have hope in something that isn't going to happen. So what is true, what does work, and what will come? Or to put it better, who is true, who is working, and who will come? And of course, the answer is Christ himself. Christ is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Christ is the one about whom the apostles wrote, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And it is Christ who said, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. So how can we place our faith in Christ as the hope of the future. Because God has repeatedly shown us in the Bible that he is the one who has proven himself to be true in the past. And he is the one who has proven himself actively at work in our real world lives. And he is the one who has proven himself faithful to us. How better to begin his argument here with an illustration from creation found in verse 3. God said it, it happened. It's just that simple. God's first example of his own faithfulness is this amazing exercise of his own unlimited power. Because God made the world out of nothing. We can have faith in him because he's all-powerful. What God says, he does. So we have faith in God's power. Second, if we jump down to verses 13 through 16, we can see that we can have faith in God's promises. Faith in God's promises. We're doing peas today. It's just how it worked out. But those verses say, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is the heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. For those of you who get our weekly email, I wrote you this week that we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and every week we're seeing this book is written to people who are suffering, people who are so beaten down with difficulties and troubles and problems, they're ready to give up. And every single week, the writer of Hebrews is trying to give them and us what they need to handle the brutal realities of life in this world. You've, many of you, most of you, have faced those brutal realities from time to time. This week, my family experienced those same uh, realities, both highs and lows, as my son Sam graduated from college. It's an answer to prayer. It wasn't funny. But on then on, on Monday, we moved my father into a nursing home. And often, that's how it goes. There's ups and downs, highs and lows, the easy and the hard, the good and the bad. How do we function as believers in such inconsistent and uncertain times? And today, Hebrews gives us something to help us handle these realities of life. And if you have it, you can handle it. You can handle anything, absolutely anything that life throws at you. And what is it and how do we get it? Well, on the surface, the answer, obviously, is faith. Because when you read through this whole chapter, it's pretty obvious we have a lot of great examples of faith. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that. Well, what kind of faith are we talking about? And one of the most amazing answers to that question is right here in the text. In this passage, we're told that when you embrace the living God, by faith, into your life comes transforming power. What do we mean by that? Remember, Hebrews is written to people who are beaten up. They've been experiencing a great deal of difficulties, a lot of suffering in their life. And the writer to Hebrews is addressing this question that's constantly on their hearts. I think it's on the hearts of a lot of people in our world today. A lot of people in our country, in our county, in our town, the people that you rub shoulders with day in, day out, a lot of people right here in this congregation. And that question is just this. If God supposedly loves us so much, why is our life so hard? Now, I'm sure you've never said that. But lots of other people have. and Maybe someone sitting next to you has said that. And in this very first verse, it says, it's talking about all the great believers in biblical history and he says, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the, on the earth. The Greek that's translated strangers there is actually a pretty complicated word. And it refers to a very specific status in Roman society. The, the most uh, equivalent that we would have in our society would be the status of resident alien. On one hand, these are people who are not visitors. They're not tourists. They're not just passing through. A resident alien is a permanent resident. That's where you live. And yet, even though they're residents, they're not citizens. 
of this land or this city where they live. They're not tourists, they're residents, but they're not citizens, and technically they're aliens. That's the actual legal term, and we're not talking about E.T. And we discover, according to this text, that we're strangers and exiles and aliens, especially when you realize that biblical Christian truth doesn't fit into traditional culture or even our highly individualistic culture. It doesn't fit into Western culture, and it doesn't fit into Eastern culture. It just doesn't fit. And one more thing, you see how absolutely narrow it is to say that the church or that Christians need to get up-to-date and current and progressive. That happens a lot, especially here in Northern Virginia. You hear people say, you know, I like a lot of what the Bible says, but some of it's regressive. Some of it's just out of date. It sounds primitive. There's certainly parts of the Bible that are socially backward. You have to get into the modern world. You need to get up to date. Do you realize how narrow that thinking is? Think about it. The culture likes a lot of what's in the Bible, but there's other texts in the Bible that are like, that's disgraceful, that's outrageous, it's scandalous. But if you go to another culture in the world, there's things that we in our culture don't like that they like. And there's things in our culture that we hate and they think are fine. Not only that, keep this in mind. You know the things of the Bible are right now the elitist American thinks of as regressive. A hundred years from now, they're probably going to think of as progressive. How can I say that? Because history proves it out. I don't know if you've ever read the great book, The City of God by St. Augustine. It's not a particularly easy read, but it's one of the great classics of Western literature. And uh, he was a tremendous intellectual. And uh, 1,500 years ago or so, he's defending Orthodox Christians and biblical belief against the critiques of his pagan culture. And one of the reasons I think it's so tedious, um, I hope he doesn't know that I said that when I get there and meet him, um, to read the City of God today, because all the criticisms uh, from his culture are now in the dustbin of history. I mean, they're laughing stocks. You read them and you're like, really? They said that? Nobody believes that. But Augustine's Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, is still something that hundreds of millions of people still embrace and love. And if you embrace Orthodox Christianity, you can read what Augustine wrote 1,500 years ago, and you can say, wow, it's the same stuff. It's the same faith. And you come forward to today, and right now we're having trouble uh, accepting, believing uh, biblical Christianity because all of the smart people, the cultural elites, are saying, Christianity, the Bible, that's so outdated. And all the things that are worrying you about the Bible because our culture is critiquing it and flat out criticizing it and us are going to be in the dustbin of history someday. In 100 or 200 years from now, they're going to be laughed at. But not biblical Christianity. It never goes out of date. 
And so when you hear someone say, Christianity has to get up to date, what they're saying, they don't think about it, but what they're really saying is, my culture is the ultimate culture. My moment of history is the ultimate moment in history. And it's not. If Christians were to actually try to fit in everywhere around the world, there'd be nothing resembling Christianity left. We have no enduring city here. The fastest way for Christianity to get out of date is to try to be up to date. Because everything that's up to date will soon be laughed at. If you criticize the Bible in this way, and you get rid of Christianity in your life because you don't think it's up to date, the things that you've jettisoned the Bible for will be lying abandoned in some future recycling center. It will be out of date faster than you know. And we have to embrace this description here in Hebrews that we're strangers and exiles and aliens. Every city we're in for all time, past and future, there is a tension between what the culture believes and what Christianity believes. But one of those things is not changing. The Christianity of Augustine 1,500 years ago and the biblical Christianity of today and the biblical Christianity 1,500 years from now will be the same. But what the culture believes will have changed 50 times in that same time period. And according to the book of Hebrews, if you embrace what the Bible teaches, if you're adopting the values and practices and beliefs of the city of God, which is to come and will never pass away, you will never, ever be out of date. 500 years from now, there'll be hundreds of people, excuse me, hundreds of millions of people who believe what you believe. It's the first thing. What we believe will last for eternity, our eternity. This faith will be around for a long, long time. Second, we're told in verse 16, if you look there, it says, but as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There is a future place, a prepared city, a better country, a heavenly future for all believers. And that's the reason why faith in the future resurrection, the future city of God, a better country, is what you need. There's a great example of this in the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. Uh, Jonathan mentioned that this morning. By the way, you guys elected four new deacons this morning. That's awesome. Um, yes, give thanks for that. But one of my favorite stories, uh, I have many favorite stories, um, and someday you'll hear them all. But that's not this day. One of them is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, the ones who quenched the fury of the flames, as Hebrews says. And the king, if you remember the story, told them, uh, he made an idol, and he said, bow down to my idol, or you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And do you know what they say? Here's what they say. It's incredible. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. <clears throat> Go look at Daniel chapter 3. It's in your outline, verses 17 and 18. They tell the king, if this be so, 
Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Do you hear that? <coughs> I'm really pushing it today. What they say is our God could deliver us from death and suffering. In fact, we believe that our God will deliver us from death and suffering. But if not, it doesn't matter. Why not? Because their faith is not in their agenda for God. Their faith is in God. I'm going to repeat that. I want you to get it. Write this down. <clears throat> their faith was not in their agenda for God. Their faith was in God. We see that all the time. People will uh, come up to me and say something like, you know, I trusted God so much. I, I prayed for this, and I prayed for that. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and he didn't come through. <coughs> Excuse me. Running out. He didn't come through. I trusted him. No, you didn't. You were trusting desperately in your agenda for him. You had an agenda. Your life has to go just this way. You have plans. They had to be accomplished. You had an agenda for God. But guess what? You're never going to face life like that because this world is never going to conform to your agenda. That's the foundation for your life. <coughs> if ultimately you think you're believing in God, but you're actually believing in your own agenda for God instead of God himself, you're not going to make it. Your faith is going to falter. It's going to fall apart. But not these people in Hebrews 11. Look at them. And if you really look at them, you know they're just as screwed up as you are. These folks believed all the way down to God. Another way to put it is they believed all the way forward to that new heaven and new earth, the new city of God, the future resurrection, and a faith that doesn't require success, that doesn't need success, that doesn't demand success, is in fact the ultimate success. One commentator on the book of Hebrews put it like this. He said, the greatest challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate such a deep and satisfying relationship with God that we rest in him whether living or dying, whether comfortable or miserable. The great challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate the unshakable confidence that God himself is better than anything life can give us or death can take from us. That God himself is better than anything life can give us or death can take from us. And so if you believe that, if you believe all the way down to that, future resurrection, that better resurrection, 
that new heavens and new earth, the new city of God, if you believe all the way down to God himself, then you can face absolutely anything. So how do you get that kind of faith? Where does it come from? Well, surprisingly, the answer comes in our last two verses. Verses 39 and 40. It's a little cryptic, but it's there. So let's jump to the end and look at faith in God's provision. It says, in all these, though commended through their faith, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Did you catch the change in pronouns? These people, all those people, everybody Dave talked about last Sunday in Hebrews 11, didn't receive what was promised because God provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, if that doesn't put pressure on you, I don't know what does. All those great saints of Hebrews 11, they're waiting on you. God's given you something that's going to help perfect them. And I imagine at this point, they're probably getting a little impatient. And they're saying, come on. You know, we, we're able to put our faith in God because we know God's already provided something better for us. And like all the biblical heroes, we look forward to that day when all God's promises are completely fulfilled. We look forward to that day when Christ comes to claim his home, uh, to, to claim his own. Because just like the people of faith before us, all those people we read about, all the Christians who've gone before us, we know we can only be made acceptable by the sacrifice of Christ himself. And so together, all believers from all times, present and perfected with Christ. And this is so important that you have to stop and ask yourself. We have to challenge ourselves. Am I putting my faith in Christ or am I putting my faith in faith? Because we still have to deal with the issue of how many Bible-believing Christians who only put their faith in faith. Almost every month, you can hear someone saying, you know, if I only had enough faith, God would, you know, heal me or my friend or give me a new car or a new house or give me a promotion or a new job or change my spouse or my parent or my child. And if we feel if we just believe hard enough, then we can get God to do what we want. And that's backwards because it puts us first. It turns faith into our own personal feelings. But it's not a feeling. It's not optimism. It's not positive thinking. It's not a hunch. It's not sentimentality. Don't put your faith merely in faith. Faith isn't supposed to be brainless. See, we can initiate nothing of value. God's the one who initiates his work in our lives. It comes solely through his own mercy and grace. And so before I can have faith, I have to have something to put my faith in. I need something to believe. And faith is this rock-solid conviction that rests on the word of God that makes the future present and the invisible seen. And faith rests on a massive, absolute certainty. 
And what is that certainty? What is the substance of faith? According to whatever Bible translation you use, faith is the certainty, the assurance, the guarantee, the substance being sure of what you hope for. So what is it that you hope for? Well, Titus 2 says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The substance of our faith is Christ. We don't put our faith in faith, we put our faith in Christ. But you can't follow someone you don't trust. And you can't trust someone you don't know. And faith means you have to take God's word at face value. When God's word says that Christ is our substance, Christ is what we hope for, Christ is who we have faith in. I don't know if you've ever been to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, or to the hallowed ground that is the battlefield in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It is an amazing place. It is a significant place. It is a scene of one of the greatest yet most horrific battles in American history. And you can go there and you can walk the nearly mile-long trek of those heroic Virginians under the command of Major General George Edward Pickett. And you can crouch behind the rocks of Devil's Den. Or you could walk up that long slope on the backside of Little Round Top and imagine facing the brave bayonet charge of Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain in the 20th Maine. It's one of our larger battlefields. And since the battle took place over three days, it can be really hard to envision exactly what happened because it's just so much and it's so big. However, the good folks at the National Park Service, they've come to help you do just that, envision the battle. So they have a brand new Gettysburg Visitor Center and they have several dioramas. They have this large electronic map table. They have a film about the battle and the battlefield. And there's a famous panorama. It's a painting that circles the whole room. And you can walk into the center of it, and you're in the middle of it. You get to see the whole battle. It's a circular portrait. And you stand in the middle to view uh, the entire drama of the battle. That's what the writer of Hebrews has done for us in these verses. We stand in the panorama of biblical history in Hebrews 11 among the heroes of faith. And we see what faith brings and what faith does. And so... What the Apostle John said at the end of his first epistle would be more than a fitting inscription. 1 John 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So we can draw four final conclusions about faith from this faith panorama of Hebrews 11. The first is that what matters is not the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but our faith in God. It ought to be obvious that Christian faith doesn't guarantee you comfort in this world. Yes, God does deliver some people from trouble, but others, it seems he delivers them into trouble. Faithful Elijah was spared Ahab's wrath, 
But numerous other faithful prophets died by his sword. 1 Kings 19. Jeremiah escaped King Jehoiakim's hatred, but his fellow prophet Uriah didn't. And if God sent an angel to break Peter's chains, he allowed James then, another of Christ's closest disciples, to die at Herod's command. So understand then that God may place us on either side of this record. On the side of those who conquered in victory or on the side of those who conquered in defeat. What matters is not the circumstances, neither the triumph or the trials. What matters is the faith by which we may conquer in all circumstances through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's first. Faith is more important than circumstances. Second, faith is sufficient while we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. Many blessings come to the Christian in this life. And yet the great point of this chapter uh, is found, and it says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And this is partially because the promises of God are beyond what can be received in this mortal life. But it's not in the flesh, but in glory, that we will be made fit to receive everything that God has promised. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So thus, we're encouraged in our faith, knowing that just ahead lies an eternal weight of glory. Beyond the cross there awaits a crown. Faith is sufficient for the man or woman of God, for faith perceives and makes real the things that are yet unseen. Third, and this is probably the main point the writer of Hebrews has for his original readers in this chapter, and that's times of trial especially demand faith. This letter is written to people who are tempted to run away, to fall back, to quit because of persecution. And earlier the author reminded them of a time now when their own heroes suffered some of the things recorded in this passage. And it's only those who stand firm in faith who are able to endure the hardship, who are joined to this sort of honor roll of salvation. That's what trials do. They test and they try our faith. They burn away the dross so what's left is pure and glorious for God. Jonathan Edwards uh, rightly said, the divine excellency of real Christianity is never exhibited with such advantage as when under the greatest trials. Then it is that true faith appears more precious than gold. Fourth and finally, let us remember in the end, when all else is gone, when everything's uh, faded away, what matters is our faith. It's only through faith that we're saved. You look back over this list of names and those associated with all these uh, descriptions here, and there's amazing variety in Hebrews chapter 11. Some are Jews, others weren't. Some are rich, some are poor. Some were men, some were women, some were loved, some were hated. Some were successful and some weren't. Some lived, some died. So what puts their names on this list of God's beloved people? Only one thing, their faith. And someday we'll look back at our own life and see how insignificant so many things are that we think are so important now. Our clothes, our cars, our houses, our reputations. 
just as we look back on these heroes of Hebrews 11 and realize their faith is all that really mattered. With faith, we gain Christ and his cross, the forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting. And without faith, we're left to perish with all the other useless things of the world. Are you rich, poor, popular, despised, look up to, or look down upon? What will it matter compared to your faith? We're told to labor, to work, to strive for eternal treasure through faith, which above all else is precious because through faith you'll be saved. The 20th century martyr Jim Elliot was right when he said, probably quoting Matthew Henry, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is the note on which our passage concludes. And all these, though commended for their faith, in other words, their names are written here only because of their faith. Same is true of the book of life in heaven where their names are found. It's only through faith in Christ that we're saved and we have our names recorded in the list of the redeemed. On the day of judgment, this is all that will matter. And then faith will be more precious than gold. These men and women of faith died without receiving all that had been promised. Our passage says they did not receive what was promised since God provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The key word is better. It's the key to the whole book of Hebrews. It speaks of better things in Christ, a better plan, a better priest, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, better blood, and a better home forever. And these heroes of the faith are waiting to see all these things that are better, things that can be seen only through faith in Jesus Christ. And if all these Old Testament saints could believe not seeing Christ, knowing only the shadows and not the reality, not seeing in any way like we can, the purchase price of our redemption by the cross then how much more faith should we have than they? We who called by his very name, John Calvin, some of you may have heard of him, wrote, a tiny spark of light led them to heaven, but now the sun of righteousness shines on us. What excuse will we offer if we still cling to the earth? Far from concluding that this great chapter on faith makes a smaller demand for faith. The actual argument is that we have a greater privilege and a greater responsibility and a greater demand for faith. So what made these people so great? What gave them a faith that overcomes the world, a faith that enables them to spit in the eye of the world no matter what, whether there's a miracle or not, whether there's an intervention or not, whether there's an escape or not, what gave them that faith that they were looking forward to something that hadn't happened yet? They're looking forward to a promise they hadn't received. And verse 40 has the audacity to say that we have something better. We've been given what they were looking for, the thing that eventually is going to complete us all together. And it's telling us that all those people in the past and all of us in the present and all the believers still to come are all going to become completed together, perfected in the city of God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's what our faith points us to. First Peter 1 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the assurance of things hoped for, and that's the conviction of things not seen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, our Lord and our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Way too often we're people of little faith, we're people who place our faith in the wrong things and in the wrong people and even in ourselves. Make us people today who place our faith in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.